Well, good morning again, everyone. It's good to be here. And the setting is very different to, I'm sure, what you are used to. And I believe the occasion is also very different because it was um, initially recommended to me that um, in bringing some relief to Andrew um, in terms of his preaching responsibilities, and I think, you know, some relief to you because you've had a long series on the book of Revelation um, that I know has been very intimidating sometimes, you know, when one reads that book and you kind of wonder, you know, so who exactly, you know, is the mark of the beast? Um, yeah, and I'm, I still haven't actually listened to that sermon online. I would like to hear, you know, who Andrew says it is um, and then maybe come back to, to tell him who I think it really is. Um, <laughs> Nevertheless, um, and then you know it was also recommended maybe you know because I believe after this morning service um, it's going to be classic has got talent, um, and so maybe to to preach on the parable of the talents. Um, but I thought that that would really be a bit too corny, you know. And uh, <laughs> um, let's rather leave that to you. Um, but nevertheless, you know, it is in that conversation as I was kind of contemplating, you know, um, what then would be the nature of the message um, that I feel the Lord um, would want me to share today. Um, my thoughts then went to some of the parables, you know, um, one of the um, ancient Christian fathers described the parables as a earthly story with a heavenly meaning. You know, which, you know, sounds quite um, nice, but, you know, I don't often think that that's the best um, definition as to what a parable is. You know, maybe at best, it's a heavenly story with an earthly meaning, you know, if you want to turn that around. But, you know, parables were these um, teaching devices that the rabbis of Jesus' day used as a way of teaching people deep truths. Because we know everybody just loves a good story, you know. It's nice to listen to good stories because it is out of good stories that one is often able to, um, you know, find pleasure and see oneself and identify oneself with maybe one of the characters of the story. Um, and out of that, you know, to hear some kind of lesson. And especially, you know, in stories, and that's the kind of stories I like, stories that always have a bit of a twist to them. You know, um, those are some of the stories, you know, that when you've completed the story, and I know that some of you do that, you know, you, you pick up a book, a novel that you've heard about, and then you run to the last chapter because you want to see how it all ends before you start. You know, that, that's not the best way of doing it. But, you know, we, we, we sometimes like that twist. And, and there's a sense in which some of that sometimes occurs within the parables. You know, there are kind of this twist to the story. But... You know, this particular parable that we have heard today and that I would like to draw our attention to and derive some kind of lesson out of is one of those parables that when it was told in the day actually had a shock value to it. There was a dimension in the story that people would have found shocking, even if appalling. And so in, 
in observing this parable, and, and you know, parables always have, you know, um, little angles and dimensions to it, and I'm not wanting to in any way allegorize this parable and try and read some deep hidden meaning into it, because fortunately for us, this is one of those parables that right at the start, um, it is it is told to us the, the, the reason why Jesus taught this parable. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. You know, and that's kind of a principle in life, a Christian virtue, a Christian value that we should all have. But what I find indeed intriguing about this particular parable um, is that Jesus taught this principle in the context of one of those fundamental practices um, that we know is so important for us as Christians, and that is in the context of prayer. And so this morning I would briefly entitle my message by focusing our attention upon the concept of prayer and how that principle that Jesus highlights here in um, Luke chapter 18 verse 9 especially needs to be applied when we consider this very fundamental Christian discipline that we call prayer. And so I want to entitle my message this morning, How to Adopt the True Posture of Prayer. How to Adopt the True Posture of Prayer. Because yes, prayer is something that is fundamental to our faith. You know, if you were to do a Google search, and I know that many of us do that, you know, to try and collect quotes, um, on various issues and various topics. And if you were to do that on prayer, you will find many valuable quotes, you know, um, of people and even Jesus himself, you know, because we know that Jesus taught um, quite a lot on prayer. You, you will find some, some very interesting quotes, you know, and, and I actually did that, you know, just to remind myself, I often keep a collection of quotes, you know, as a way of reminding me about some principles that we tend to forget. Um, but at the same time, they become very useful sermon illustrations, you know, or um, bits of, in, of, of information and wisdom that one can sometimes share with others. One of the quotes I came across um, where one writer describes how important prayer is in which he says that prayer is the soul of our faith. In other words, there's a sense in which prayer is one of the most, if not the most fundamental of all of the Christian disciplines. Now, I would be the last to kind of claim that I am particularly a professional when it comes to, um, to, to prayer. Um, indeed, as I look across the congregation today and knowing some of you, um, I know that amongst this congregation here this morning, there are many that could be described as warriors of prayer. In other words, people who have made prayer um, the, the, the main focus of, of their life in everything that they do, maybe even more so than many of, of us who often find ourselves so busy with so many other things, you know, even when we are, are going about the work of the Lord. I like what Martin Luther, for example, is said to have said about prayer. 
Martin Luther apparently said, Prayer to the Christian is like breathing to the person. Prayer for the Christian is like breathing to the person. Um, and, so, and so indeed, if we acknowledge how important prayer is, you know, I'm sure that if, we were, if I were to ask the question, you know, so how often do we pray or how often should we pray, many of us will, will probably um, come to the admission, you know, that we maybe do not pr- pray as often as what we should or as often as what we could. But you see, I think one of the lessons that this parable teaches us, and which I think is very important when it comes to understanding the true posture of prayer, it is that prayer is not always about the quantity, about how often we pray. And I want, and I want to say, you know, it is not bad to pray as often as what you want to, you know, or what you feel you need to. But it's actually more about the quality of the prayer. And when we, when we come to consider what the true posture of prayer is, then indeed I believe this parable illustrates for us um, that it is indeed an aspect about the quality of prayer that is very, very important for us to consider. So at a very basic level, I'm sure many of you would know, you know, that if, if one were to attempt to define prayer, prayer could be defined as essentially communication with God. And I know that, you know, when I listen to many of my prayers, you know, it tends to be one-way communication, you know, because it's all about, you know, as much as what um, I can say to God and as soon as possible, you know, to get through a lot of the preambles of my prayer and then to get down to my shopping list that I want to present to God. But if prayer is communication with God, you know, we have to ask ourselves the question, you know, how then do we hear God and um, how do we open up our minds and our hearts to actually listen from him? And that's an important question that hopefully somebody else will, will speak on, um, on another day. But, but I, I, I recognize and, and I think we all recognize that because prayer is very important, we have to admit that sometimes it is one of the most neglected um, virtues and disciplines when it comes to our lives. D.L. Moody um, is, say, um, is said to have said, you know, because I've, um, this is one of those quotes, you know, that you find out there and you, you don't always know, you know, does it actually come from the person? But, but if he said this, um, I think it is something that we know is true. Um, D.L. Moody apparently said, that if one looks at the history of Christianity and you look at all of those times that there's been a great move of God, you know, that we often call a revival, you will often find that it was started by somebody who spent time on their knees. And so I know that when we listen to quotes like that and many others, sometimes prayer for us can be something that is very intimidating, you know. I mean, especially if you, if you are a new Christian, um, you know, and you hear others praying wonderful prayers, you know, um, being able to use language, you know, that when one listens to that, you know, um, just kind of elevates you and takes you, takes you into heaven, you know. I know for many people, 
um, especially new Christians, prayer can be something very, very intimidating. You know, and as a result of that, you know, for, for some people within the traditions in which they have grown up, and I'm sure this might be true for some over here, prayer has become very ritualized. You know, ritualized as a way of seeking to instill within people the discipline around prayer. You know, so if you come from some of the Episcopal traditions, um, especially, for example, within the Anglican Church, you will know, you know, that they have what is called the Book of Common Prayer um, as a way of guiding you as a Christian through prayers, mornings, afternoon, evenings, and especially for certain occasions. Um, if you come out of the Catholic tradition, and especially if you were a person who was studying for the priesthood, you know, they even have what is known as the Liturgy of the Hours published in four volumes, you know, as a way of guiding the person who has dedicated their lives in service to God to that of prayer. You know, I once was on a conference um, and shared a room with some folk. One of them was a young man who was busy studying to be a Jesuit priest. And every morning, you know, after I had my devotions, you know, he had his devotions, but I noticed that at specific times during the day, you know, he had this thick book that I thought, okay, maybe it was a Bible, you know, and when I inquired um, 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 with him about it, he said, no, you know, um, this is volume two or volume three um, of the Liturgy of the Hours, or what is known as the Divine Office, um, so that every single hour of the day, there could be some kind of prayer that he could pray, that he could, that he could utter. And I was fascinated by that. You know, I mean, there was a certain sense in which I felt, you know, coming from the tradition that we do as evangelicals, in which for us worship is very free and, and spontaneous, and therefore prayer also tends to be that free and spontaneous. Um, we, we tend to add lib our prayers, as it were. Um, but considering, you know, how valuable something like that could be. And when I compared myself in relation to him, you know, I said, Lord, yes, I know prayer is more about quality than about quantity, but maybe I need to do what the disciples did when they observed the prayer life of Jesus. And they said to him, Lord, teach us how to pray. Because we know that Jesus did spend many hours away from his disciples on his own to spend time with his father. You know, which for me, I find theologically perplexing. You know, here is God, you know, speaking to himself, you know, as it were. You know, here's Jesus, the Son of God, spending time with his heavenly Father. Now, there are many dimensions to prayer. You know, I'm sure many of you would have heard sermons and, and read many books about prayer. You know, about the language of prayer. About the different forms of prayer that they could take. You know, um, um, forms like praise, worship, lament, petition, intercession, thanksgiving, mediation, meditation, contemplative, you know, even silent prayer. You know, driving up Kuburg Road not too long ago. You know, as you come to the intersection of Kuburg Road um, to Voortrekker Road, on the left-hand side there is an entrance to, um, um, to a building, you know, that is used by some church. And at, while standing there one day, you know, I looked up at their notices, and on their calendar um, for the week, they had offensive prayer. And I thought to myself, you know, um, I've, I've thought of prayer in many different ways, but I've never really thought of prayer as being offensive. 
But you see, I understood actually what they meant. What they, they, they were using the term offensive rather than being defensive in prayer. In other words, they were saying, you know, sometimes one needs to strive in prayer, you know, and one needs to contend in prayer, you know, in which prayer sometimes becomes this, the spiritual battle that one fights. But by and large, amongst all of these things that we often consider about prayer that is important, I think especially as evangelical Christians, we tend not to pay too much attention to what I think this passage is also telling us about, to make sure that whenever we pray, that we pray with the correct posture. You see, we understand that prayer is essentially our response to God. And when we pray, we often pray with a certain level of expectation and with the hope that there's going to be a transformation that's going to be taking place within our life. Indeed, when one reads through the great prayers of the Bible, you often find that that is some of the hallmarks of some of the great, the, the, the great prayers of the Bible, especially in that well-known prayer that we often call the Lord's Prayer or the prayer that the Lord taught us how to pray, the, the Pater Noster. You know, I mean, there's even a place named after the Lord's Prayer because Pater Noster is just the Latin term for our Father. And so what Jesus does in that great prayer, maybe the greatest prayer in the Bible in Matthew chapter 6 from verse 9 to verse 15, you know, um, Jesus pray, teaches his disciples how to pray to keep some of these hallmarks in mind. What are some of those, those patterns that we need to observe? You know, and if I were to summarize what the patterns are of the Lord's Prayer, it is essentially this, that we always pray with a sense of humble submission to God. You see, as we take a look at this particular passage, and as I said, um, Jesus taught this parable in which he was seemingly mostly addressing the Pharisees of the day. So here you have it. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, one a tax collector. Now as we are seated here today, you know, we listen to the story and we read the story with what we call the benefit of hindsight. You know, um, we know the long history, you know, especially the history of where Jesus, and you can read about this in Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus was very critical about the Pharisees. You know, I mean, there's probably about six woes um, that Jesus addresses directed at the Pharisees, in which he concludes with a metaphor, and he says, you Pharisees, you are nothing else but whitewashed tombs filled with dead men's bones. And we don't get how shocking that would have been in the day and age in which Jesus said that. You know, it would be like you were to come to classic service one day, and lo and behold, there were two very special guests in classic service on that day. On the one hand, seated right, in, right up in front was, you know, the late Reverend Dr. Billy Graham. You know, and I'm sure, you know, uh, we would all be, wow, you know, he's visiting us today. But seated at the back, you know, would be the well-known politician Julius Malema. 
you know, and it would come to prayer time, and everybody would want to listen to Dr. Billy Graham, you know, pray, you know, and then, you know, I mean, who would want to listen to Julius Malema praying, you know, um, but, but just imagine that, you know, because what Jesus was trying to illustrate was, just imagine you were to be in a service like that one day, and then you were to discover that God did not listen to the prayer of Billy Graham but rather listen to the prayer of Julius Malema. You know, it's, it's that kind of almost shocking reality that Jesus wanted to bring um, to the hearers of the day. You see, if we, if we think about it, if you had to ask the question in the days of the New Testament, you know, who is the person who most likely would have their prayers answered? People would have said to you, the Pharisees. Why? Because everything about the Pharisees spelt of religiosity. As I said, you know, we sit with the benefit of hindsight, you know, based upon what Jesus had to say to them. But who were the Pharisees? You know, I mean, you you read the Bible, you all of a sudden encounter Pharisees in the New Testament. But nowhere in the Old Testament do we read of Pharisees. But you see, um, while the history of the Pharisees, you know, isn't always very clear, what we do know is that this that these Pharisees that became a Jewish sect of Jesus' day probably emerged out of a very pious movement that came from what we call the intertestamental period, that 400-year period, uh, period of so-called silence between the book of Malachi, which was the last prophet in the Old Testament, and when John the Baptist appeared you know, in the New Testament announcing that Jesus is the spotless Lamb of God. It is in that period of time, you know, while the voice of God was silent, God's people were very actively considering you know, how they ought to worship God and to do so properly. And it was this group of people known as the Pharisees that emerged out of what we might call that Hasidic movement, that movement of piety that sought to dedicate everything about their lives to not only the study of God's word, but to make sure that everything about the way in which they lived would be in keeping with the law. Some people therefore described Pharisees correctly um, seeing themselves as the gatekeepers of the faith. Many of them were leaders of the synagogue of Jesus' day, while at the same time many of them um, were business people as well. And we know that the Bible mentions some of these famous Pharisees that actually took Jesus very seriously, like Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee that came to speak to Jesus. The apostle Paul had been trained as a Pharisee. So just imagine then what it would have been like, the shock of, of what Jesus said to them, you know, the very person that you think God would hear was not that person. Rather, it was the tax collector. You see, there's a sense in which spiritually you had this hierarchy um, within, within the New Testament world as far as popular opinion was concerned. Right at the top of the rung would be the Pharisee but right at the bottom of the rung. The worst of sinners alongside the prostitutes and the murderers would be the tax collector. You see, tax collectors in the day and age of Jesus, as I'm sure you would have heard, were often Jewish people who had been contracted by Rome in order to collect taxes from people. 
And just like us today, we are overtaxed and taxed to death, you know. Uh, and, and, and that's how people felt in the day and age in which they were living, you know, because, because the tax collector was, was chiefly responsible for collecting the taxes of Rome. You know, and, and from New Testament history, we know that there were at least three kinds of taxes. You know, um, there was a land tax and there was a head tax, which was related to senses, you know, and there was taxes related to, you know, the, the, the goods that you would buy and that you would trade in. But then, if you were a Jew, you also had to pay a temple tax. Now, the, the tax collectors weren't necessarily responsible for that, even though there's evidence that some of them were doing that. But you see, tax collectors never actually earned a salary in the, tra the traditional sense of the word. You know, it was well known that the, that the way in which a tax collector actually earned their living was by charging a commission on, on, the, on their taxes. And the vast majority of them actually abused that system. So we know of Zacchaeus. And we know that when Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' home and Zacchaeus comes to conviction, you know, Zacchaeus says, I'm going to go and pay back even more than what I've owed people. You know, because that's, that's how he became rich. He, he, he really um, overtaxed people and did it in order to make himself rich. And therefore, in the popular mind, tax collectors were the worst of sinners. They were some of the most despised of people. Interestingly, Jesus calls one of his first disciples who was a tax collector. Yeah. And so this tax collector, rather than the Pharisee, we are told, was the one who, when he prayed, God listened to him. Now, why did God listen to him? Well, we, 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 could, we could say, well, let's take a look at the content of his prayer. You know, because here you have the, tax the, the Pharisee, and what the, what the Pharisee does is, he's not actually praying to God. He's praying towards himself and for the benefit of others. He's, he's committing one of the greatest sins that one could commit when one prays, when praying becomes self-advertisement. I thank God that I'm not like other people. Self-righteous. These greedy people, unrighteous people, adulterers, or even, and this is where he places the tax collector, even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week. You know, the, 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 the Pharisee is, is, is taking a pride in terms of his own righteousness that actually went beyond what would have been expected of a Pharisee? You know, yes, indeed, they were expected to fast, but to fast twice a week, in fact, according to the regulations of the Pharisees, they were actually only expected to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. I give a tenth, I tithe, a tenth of everything I get. The, the Jewish historian Josephus who also is said to have trained as a, as a Pharisee, um, went into detail as to how the Pharisees would often tithe. And in fact, has a, has a line in which he says, the Pharisees even tithed on their herbs. 
You know, so in other words, you, you, you can kind of imagine you, you're doing that, you know, you, you're cooking, you know, and that, and that, that's, that, that small things, you know, that you add, you know, which is very important, you know, for, 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 for the flavor. You know, the Pharisees would even tithe on the herbs that they would put in their food, you know, of everything that I get. But the tax collector standing far off, and here we see what the true posture of prayer is. You see, when, when I was growing up, I was always told that, you know, one has to pray with your eyes closed. You know, and I always wondered why that is the case. You know, is it because we do not want to become distracted by things around us? You know, maybe it helps us, uh, helps us to concentrate. And that you need to take your hands and you need to put them together, you know, in the form of prayer, you know. And you will know that there was that painting and that sculpture known as the praying hands. You know, we had one of that. You know, and that was given to me as the illustration. You know, that's how you pray. You take your hands, you put it together. So you can stop fidgeting. <laughs> you know? So you can, you can focus and you can concentrate. And then it is very important that you get down on your knees. Because it is when you get down on, on your knees, that is when God is going to hear you. And so there was a sense in which I became guilty you know, of that evangelical ritualism, you know, even in my prayer. You know, anybody who would pray with their eyes open, I found that deeply offensive. But how would I know that they would be praying with their eyes open? Because <laughs> I had my eyes open. <laughs> and when they didn't put their hands in front of them, in the, in the posture of prayer, or even get out on their knees, and sure, you know, sometimes, most of the times in church, we would be seated or, or, or we would stand. You know, the normal posture for prayer um, in the day and age, and this is what is illustrated by the Pharisee, was to stand and to raise your hands and to look up into heaven. That, is, that, that was the normal posture for prayer. However, the tax collector standing off, standing in the corner, would not even raise his eyes to the heavens, but kept striking his chest. So maybe part of the reason why God listened to him, we would say, was because he prayed the sinner's prayer. And indeed, that is what we are looking for. I mean, I would hope that Julius Malema would pray the sinner's prayer. God, turn your wrath from me, a sinner. A simple prayer. But I believe it wasn't so much just the words that he used but it was because of the posture that he adopted that God listened to his prayer. Because Jesus says, I tell you, this one went away to his house justified rather than the other. And Jesus gives the explanation because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, friends, the true posture of prayer is not so much what we physically do with our bodies, but rather it is that which we do within our hearts. The true posture of prayer is always praying with humility. How do we do this? I once came across a story um, of an African-American agricultural scientist. Some of you might have heard of him. His name is George Washington Carver. He lived in the early 1900s, um, and um, it is said that he had well over 300 inventions 
to his name related to agriculture and other things. And a lot of his inventions was actually around what we call the humble peanut. You know, so that, you know, I'm not too sure whether he invented peanut butter, um, but, you know, from the peanut, he had many inventions. I'm not too sure um, how many in relation to the 300, but apparently it was quite substantial. And the story is told that in his youth, George Washington Carver asked God to tell him the mysteries of the universe, as any scientist would. But God said to him, that knowledge is reserved for me alone. So he said, God, tell me then the mystery of the peanut, to which God in his heart and his mind apparently said to him, well, George, that's more the size for you. You see, I think that there is a sense in which, you know, given the fact that we can enter with boldness into God's presence, that we can come boldly, as the book of Hebrews tells us, and that we need to sometimes persist in prayer. You know, while all of that is true, unfortunately, that sometimes does result that we sometimes forget that that does not mean that we must still continue to adopt the true posture of prayer. And so how do we do that? I want to suggest there are four ways in which we as Christians can practically make sure that we adopt the true posture of prayer, no matter what we pray or how we pray or how often we pray. I think, first of all, it is about this. It is about recognizing, first of all, who God is. Recognizing, first of all, who God is. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in, says the hymn writer. I don't know why or what has happened, you know, <laughs> that even though we sing, you know, I'm a friend of God, that often in our prayers we come before God, you know, with a kind of spiritual audacity. <laughs> you know, and we think that we can speak to God as if he is our servant. And we don't recognize him as the creator of the universe and that we are simply his creatures. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. You know, I mean, just think about the Lord's Prayer. It sets that scene for helping us to understand that we are approaching the God of the universe. So we first of all need to recognize who God is. Secondly, we need to pray exactly like the tax collector. We then also need to acknowledge who we are. We need to recognize that we are just sinners who have been saved by grace. And so while we've been granted access into, into the very throne room of God, into the Holy of Holies, it does not mean that our prayer is coming into God's presence in which we see God as our buddy and we say to him, high five, big buddy. But we need to recognize who we are. We are creatures. We are the peanut Thirdly, when we pray, we always need to declare our complete dependence upon God. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That tax collector could not save himself. We couldn't save ourselves. And we cannot save ourselves, even as we, <laughs> as we have entered into the faith and as we live out our faith before God. But we always need to declare our complete dependence upon God. 
And you see, the reason why I say that, because there's, there's this kind of practices that often emerges within Christianity, you know, especially around the, around the concept of declaration. You know, indeed, Scripture speaks of us declaring the majesty of God and the greatness of God, but often it becomes, you know, almost like our Christian abracadabra. You know, that, that, that we are therefore able to command God through, through the way in which we, 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 we make declarations, the way in which we quote scripture as declarations, thinking that God is therefore going to act because we have said abracadabra. But rather we just need to declare, if anything, our complete dependence upon God. And then finally, to focus on the needs of others rather than just ourselves. Now, I said right in the beginning that, you know, I often find myself guilty of that, that, that when I pray, too soon, too quickly, do I get into my needs, do I get into my wants. But I've discovered this, that it is when we pray for others and we focus more on the needs of others, that it helps us to maintain that posture of our dependence upon God, that posture of humility. So the main ingredient then for prayer is humility, and the true posture of prayer is the same. It is the words of some Christian artists that I feel has helped me to understand how important it is that whenever I pray, that I maintain the true posture of prayer. I conclude by quoting them. Bob Carlyle, you know, famous for his song, Butterfly Kisses, remember that one? Actually also sang on prayer. And in one of his songs, he says this, On my knees, I can see forever. On my knees, I can face it all. I feel like I can climb a mountain because on my knees the world's a little smaller and I stand taller on my knees. The Christian artist Jackie Valeskis also sings a song on prayer in which he says, I get on my knees. I get on my knees. There I am before the love that changes me. See, I don't know how, but there's power when I'm on my knees. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray. As we often do, and as you call upon us to commit ourselves to you, and to remain in constant communion with you. We pray that whenever we approach you, you might help us through your spirit, that we might, might always adopt the true posture of prayer. We pray, dear Lord, that you might forgive us of the many times that we have prayed presumptuously 
and we even in our actions we have not shown the respect and the worship of you as you alone deserve help us to lord whether we do so physically or not that our prayer might be characterized by the posture of humility as we pray this in jesus name amen